Hello, and thank you for joining us for another edition of Stratford Talks, a podcast focused on geopolitics and world affairs from Stratford.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. Days before the battle for Mosul began last October, Stratford senior analyst Sim Tak came on the podcast to discuss what the campaign by Iraqi forces and the coalition partners would look like, and more importantly, what geopolitical challenges would follow once the Islamic State was pushed out of the city. He was joined by senior military analyst Omar Lamrani, a Middle East and North Africa analyst, Emily Hawthorne. Now that Iraqi forces have fought their way to the eastern shore of the Tigris River and are preparing for the next phase of the campaign, Simtak, Omar Lamrani and Emily Hawthorne return to the podcast for an update on the fight so far and what lies ahead. Then in part two of the podcast, Faisal Pervez sits down with Vice President of Strategic Analysis, Roger Baker, to discuss how Stratfor's geopolitical analysis and forecasting can benefit businesses whether they're trying to see through the noise and understand what's actually driving the international system at the moment, or simply planning for the future. Thanks for joining us. So here with me today to talk about the ongoing Mosul operation in Iraq, I have Emily Hawthorne, Omar Lamrani, and Sim Tak. Thanks for being here today with me, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So when we last spoke about Mosul in October, the operation to retake this critical northern Iraqi city was still in its very, very early stages. What have we seen since then? Well, at the initial phase of the operation, uh, there was much question about how much resistance uh, the Iraqi offensive aided by the uh, Kurdish Peshmer Guard was going to face. There were ups and downs, but overall, the Islamic State resistance was extremely fierce. Very significant casualties were taken by the Iraqis. And it took them quite a while to make the progress that they did thus far. The battle is far from over. Uh, we are at uh, a certain midpoint where the eastern bank of the city has been taken. And the uh, western bank, the more dense western part of the city, is still at play. I suppose that that heavy resistance was to be expected. But, but clearly, uh, having fought through large portions of the city, what do you think are some of the lessons that are identified and taken on board by the Iraqi security forces and their coalition partners? I believe one of the one of the biggest lessons that we've seen the Iraqi security forces learn during the battle is the way in which the Islamic State logistics affected the battle in eastern Mosul. Um, so one of the things that we saw very early on in, in the fight was their attempts to disrupt that mobility between east and west of the city, which which had a very big impact on the amount of vehicle-borne improvised explosive devices that were deployed against the attacking forces. And then later on, I think in the um, uh, when we saw the pause in the offensive, when the whole battle plan was revised a little and the U.S. commitment to the fight changed a little, I think we saw another moment where they, they adjusted their methods more to the actual fight they were fighting. Yeah, another lesson learned there was also uh, the necessity of having coordinated offensives. So, for instance, uh, when they first reached the city, instead of waiting for the other prongs, the offensive prongs to arrive and advancing into the city uh, together in a coordinated fashion, uh, the Iraqi uh, Special Operations Forces went in unsupported for the most part. And uh, it was much easier for the Islamic State to marshal the forces and defeat and block each advance in turn. But later on, when the Iraqis made sure that they have multiple advances in conjunction and coordinated, that's actually paid off quite significantly because the Islamic State, which is outnumbered, was overstretched and could not defeat every single offensive direction that the Iraqis were launching. So, Omar, do you, do you think that that's those same accomplishments that they achieved on the eastern bank of the 
of the river will actually translate into the western side or are they actually starting a entirely new battle and, and starting from scratch again where they'll have to learn their new lessons? I think they'll definitely take those lessons with them to the western bank, uh, including the, the coordination aspects, the, uh, the night raids that were very successful toward the end of the fight for the eastern bank, the logistics aspects, making sure that uh, the uh, IED factories were hit, making sure that the road networks were, were paralyzed to, to make it more difficult for the Islamic State to bring in those BBIDs. But in many ways, it's also a different type of fight because it involves a river crossing to a certain degree. I mean, you can't come in from the from the west bank, but from the south or from the north, but they are they will have to cross from, from the east bank, uh, given that's where they are right now. Most of the forces are. Um, there's also the fact that the western parts of the city is far denser. It's the older parts, and the streets are much more narrow. So one of the tactics that they utilized to great effect was to fight from within their vehicles as much as possible and to be able to direct overwhelming superiority while uh, overwhelming superiority in firepower while being shielded uh, except for from BBIEDs. But in, in the very, very narrow streets of Western Mosul, especially in the older city, that's not possible anymore and you will have to rely on foot traffic, uh, which is you know much more dangerous, much more uh, vulnerable to, uh, to Islamic State's close quarters combat fighting. And that also relates to one of the big considerations and one of the lessons that they've learned um, through the offensive on the eastern part of the city. Um, that western part that Omar, as you refer to, is far more densely packed. Um, we know that there's still a huge amount of civilians trapped. And right now there's an estimate of 159,000 individuals have been displaced. And we know that there's going to be far more throughout that offensive through the western part of the city. So this has slowed the coalition's advances somewhat through the eastern part of the city as they've tried to take into account the fact that there are civilians trapped in their homes and that they'd advise civilians to shelter down in their homes. So it's going to be a huge consideration as they move forward on the western side and something that the international community is trying to prepare for. I believe there are reports of as much as 750,000 civilians right. still stuck in the park. Exactly. Very difficult for, for all kinds of considerations. They had a watermark, um, a high point of displacement on January 18th, at least according to the official numbers, 162,000. And there's been a, a celebration over just the, the small amount of civilians that have returned to homes in eastern Mosul. Um, and Baghdad is trying to focus on the fact that there is some stability in eastern Mosul for civilians to return, but the road ahead on the western side is, is much tougher. So this is really going to get tough um, from that standpoint and from Baghdad trying to reassert its legitimacy as the caretaker of uh, the civilians of Mosul. There's also a silver lining that we can highlight. Um, we've highlighted the, the, the different difficult variables that will be faced in the western bank that may have maybe even tougher than the eastern bank. But there is a couple of things that's, um, that are in, on the positive side for Baghdad and the Iraqis in general. The first is that it's believed that the Islamic State has actually sent most of its uh, best fighters early on. They committed them early on to the fighting, and a lot of these small units were decimated in the fighting in the East Bank. So that's, that's one, one, one hope. One hopes for that once they actually cross into Western Mosul, the quality of the defenders will not be as high. The second one is that a lot of their leadership has already been killed of, of the Islamic State defenders as well. So there are very, very tough variables to the West Bank that we highlighted, but there's also some silver linings there. Right. 
So the battle for Mosul has really been illustrative of a lot of the complexities when it comes to operating in an urban environment. Uh, there's a lot of intensity, a lot of friction, and again, that there are unforeseen factors such as the civilian uh, population and, and the displacement from there. And uh, as much as it does, like you say, confer an advantage to the defender, um, it, it seems to be a case of uh, when Mosul falls, not if uh, the defensive will continue to push on. What do you think we're going to see uh, in the closing stages of the battle, both in the city itself and, and in terms of the bigger picture in Iraq and also, uh, you know, displaced populations and groups seeking to return to the area? So one of the big things that, that I think we're expecting ahead in the in the fight, and Omar already mentioned this earlier, is the, the fact that a lot of these Iraqi forces will actually have to cross the river in the middle of Mosul. Uh, so massive river for crossing in the middle of an urban environment. It's a, it's a pretty complex operation. And we've already seen the Islamic State prepare for this. So even after United States airstrikes had targeted the, the bridges in the city center of Mosul to prevent Islamic State fighters from getting through the eastern side, the Islamic State has now been damaged to these bridges um, and even to, to structures on, on the western side of the, the riverbanks to make it very difficult for Iraqi security forces to first of all, cross the river and then, you know, set up a foothold on, on the western side of the of the river. So that's that's actually going to be one major potential point of failure, actually, in, in the whole operation and, and trying to actually jump across the river there. Yeah, and it's further complicated by the geography. Uh, the western bank of the river, of the western side of Mosul, is higher. It's more elevated. So even if you want to construct artificial bridges through pontoon bridges, it's difficult and it's coming under excessive indirect fire from uh, Islamic State mortar teams who, who are continuing to fire on a, on a daily basis at uh, points where they think the Iraqis are gather, gathering their engineering equipment for the crossing. The Iraqis have responded by setting up anti-tank guided missile positions uh, on the east side of the, of the, of the bank, and, and they're keeping the, uh, the Islamic State's forces from, from engaging the, the, uh, the crossing directly, but there are other means, like what I mentioned, the mortars and other ways of, of still making the crossing highly dangerous and risky. So clearly the, the river crossing and then the uh, the assault onto uh, to Western Mosul is something that we'll be tracking very, very closely from a, a tactical perspective. But but to level back slightly, to, to look at, at the city politically, the, the region and countrywide, what, what are the, the, the dynamics uh, that kind of ripple out from Mosul itself, Emily? I think we have to consider uh, local dynamics, regional dynamics, um, as well as really the global implications of the next phase of this at battle as we focus on the western side of the city and then beyond. We know that the Islamic State is in a position where it is very likely and will be ousted from the city. Really, the question is what happens in Iraq politically after that point? We know that Baghdad is trying to reassert its legitimacy in Mosul. Baghdad agreed to pay some of the benefits for civil servants if they return back to their jobs in eastern Mosul. That's just one of the ways that Baghdad is going to be trying to establish some modicum of stability in the city, even while there is a lot of security concerns um, regarding civilians going back to the city until it's fully stabilized. And we know that's going to take a long time. Um, but one really interesting battle that we know is coming, I mean, it's going to play out in the Baghdad parliament, is that between the semi-autonomous Kurdish region in northern Iraq, which is fully invested in this battle and has been for some time um, since the Islamic State swept through portions of Iraq in, in 2014, and Baghdad. Um, we know that the Kurds are pushing for uh, sovereignty over some of the land that they liberated. And this is a constitutional battle to come that's going to be contentious. It's going to be prolonged. And the Kurds think that they have really standing, um, and they're going to be basing this on Article 140 
of the Constitution to wrench sovereignty over some of this land that they have fought for from Baghdad. So this is something that's going to be playing out for some time, and it's going to you're going to see some ebbs and flows in Kurdish unity as they try to come together to present that demand to Baghdad, and, and Baghdad will be pushing back. Um, that's one local implication. And it's interesting to see how the actual the, the military battle then sets the conditions for these political battles that will be fought subsequently, and obviously in the sidelines. But you mentioned the, the effects uh, on, on the global perspective. Uh, what do you think they will be, Emily? We know that the Islamic State even if it's ousted from the city itself, a lot of fighters are going to be driven into the desert in eastern Syria. Um, The Islamic State problem is not going away even after the success of the Mosul operation. Um, So there's going to be a continued coalition focus on how do we continue to combat the Islamic State. And that means that there is a need for some degree of continuity, stability in how every coalition member continues to get along. And one of the big components of that is the U.S.-Iraq relationship. And even with the new administration, um, there has been some continuity in terms of the personnel that uh, the U.S. personnel that's charged with positions of responsibility. We have Brett McGurk um, has stayed on even through the changing of the administration. So the U.S. Is, is heavily invested as a member of the coalition supporting Iraqi and Kurdish forces in this fight. But there's a significant degree of uncertainty in terms of what will that U.S. contribution be uh, moving on into the future. One, one of the things that remains a question mark is uh, PMUs, popular mobilization units. And what, do, what they will do after the Mosul operation is wrapped up. That's a big commitment of theirs. Um, they're not in the city, but they're part of the wider campaign. Uh, they're involved west of the city right now. So as the Islamic State decreases in, in, in its potential in, in Iraq and, and the threat is mitigated to a certain extent, though it's, never, it's not going to go away anytime soon, there is the potential that the PMU will start shifting more towards Syria and affecting the battle space there. Uh, so just as we are looking at the... Uh, the Iraq battle space, we just have to remember that it also spills over into other areas, uh, notably Syria. And there's also, related to the PMU presence, some of them are funded and backed by Iran, others are not. But it it is a, a way for Iran to be invested in the future of Iraq as a country. And you'll see on into the next six months to a year, uh, the Iraqi government is balancing between this tension of, of really asserting its own sovereignty as its own country with a very diverse government. But you also have a lot of tension and and influence that countries like Iran are seeking to implement over it. And that the PMUs and the support that Iran gives to them is one way that Iran does have a foothold in the future of Iraq. I think that's a a fantastic point to end on, because from our perspective, it's, it's fascinating to watch how these battles on the ground affect their their immediate battle space, the region, the country, and and the broader geopolitical landscape. And we're seeing this play out in real time in Mosul. And it's clearly something we will continue to keep a close eye on at Stratfor.com. Emily, Omar Sim, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about Mosul. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Faisal Purvez, and I'm a South Asia analyst here at Stratfor. And today I'm very pleased to be joined by our Vice President of Strategic Analysis, Mr. Roger Baker, to discuss the business use and application of geopolitical analysis and forecasting. I wanted to start here. Um, I thought it'd be appropriate to start by mentioning an article. There's a quote that I have in mind. It was published way back in 1904. 
and it is entitled The Geographical Pivot of History and is written by, of course, Sir Halford Mackinder, who was the early 20th century British geographer. And the quote is, Man and not nature initiates, but nature in large measure controls. And I wanted to start with that quote because I think any discussion that involves geopolitics should begin with defining what do we mean by geopolitics. Well, I would say that we use geopolitics as a method of looking at the world and interpreting information. And if I were to put a very short answer to what is geopolitics, I would say it is the intersection of place and organized people over time. And it is a way that they influence each other and influence their development through history. If you add in technology, that's often the way in which people alter place. Um, if you look at things like climate, if you look at geographic features, if you look at natural resources, if you look at availability of routes, if you look at uh, rivers and mountains and flatlands and swamps, you begin to see how a place shapes the development. And it's not that it's deterministic. Place provides certain easier opportunities. It provides certain constraints that are not impossible to overcome, but add cost in the attempt to overcome. And so geopolitics, in many ways for us, is a way to understand why is, in modern terms, a country the way it is? How has it developed over time to become what we see today? And are there elements that underlie the current reality that go far back and that go beyond day-to-day -day politics to help us understand uh, what we would call constraints and compulsions on nations? And, and let me pick up on something here that you said. Um, in the day-to-day -day world, if you turn on the news, there's a certain dynamism to what's happening in the world. Something is always changing, it seems. Some leader takes a different position on something. Some policy maybe now is having a shift. But a great value that I found through the Stratfor view of the world, which I certainly think when we get to sort of the business application, this has some great utility, is that underneath all that noise, there's almost a permanence of certain factors which you can use then to try to, to understand the future directionality of, of, of events. Can you give us maybe an example? And I know you and I have talked quite a bit about China. That's the first country that comes to mind. But can you maybe give an example of, I don't know, some trend or some directionality that from the Stratford point of view shows the application of geopolitics and us taking into account that there is a place within which these statesmen and these actors are behaving and that if you understand that place and you see that how it shapes and constrains that environment, that that can actually clarify and allow you to cut through so much of the noise. So let's go with your example of China. If we look at China and if we step back from what we know today and what we think of as China to just look at the landscape upon which China appears. We can see that there are key river systems. We can see historically that those were the spaces where early civilizations were able to arise and to flourish. As we look at that landscape, we see these river areas. We see them surrounded in some ways by a shell of 
for lack of a better word, buffer type territories. There are high mountains. There are vast extended plains. Uh, there are long ran- running deserts. There are uh, high plateaus and dense forests. Sure, sure. And what that does is it turns that internal unit toward itself. It has a protection from the outside, which allows it to focus internally upon itself. And that's that drive that we've seen throughout history of China to consolidate within that core. And for the most part, through much of Chinese history, we see that because China at the time has a fair amount of natural resources, has in general an ability to sustain itself, and has protection from that core, which includes the seafront, that China is largely an inward-focused entity. When China becomes an empire, it's less an empire of conquest than it is an empire of simply asserting its central authority upon rings and layers of neighbors further out. Then as we look at changes over time in the economic patterns in China, for example, in the modern era, as China moves into, particularly in the 1970s and 1980s, moves into a model of heavier engagement in international trade. If you were to plot out Chinese production and consumption of key commodities, you're going to find that as you start running into the 1990s, the consumption of key commodities starts to exceed the domestic production of key commodities. Right. And now has reached a point where in many cases it's double or more how much they're consuming than how much they're producing. Add in the elements of then selling additional product, and you can start to see how China is now compelled to protect its long-term and long-distance maritime trade, for example. So when we look at a China that has developed to a certain point and now attempts to embark upon a new maritime experiment that if you go through Chinese history, it really doesn't have, the common assertion is China feels like it's a big country and it wants to dominate. But geopolitics will tell us, well, there may be some aspect of that in certain individuals thinking or in, in a mindset or in the way in which it's shaped, but there are deeper elements that are driving China in that direction. And the Chinese government has made a choice to pursue this one avenue to deal with these right, imperatives. Yeah. It's not dictated by geopolitics, but geopolitics helps us to understand that there's something underneath that beyond uh, subjective intent. So how can an understanding of that dynamic then help a business or an organization navigate through an increasingly complicated world? Well, I would say there's two different ways to look at that. Number one is geopolitics gives you a frame upon which to make a certain assessment of, say, countries and the interaction of countries and the way in which they work and operate. That then gives you a way to measure against Uh, the constant flow of new information. In other words, how do you sort through the overabundance of information? You build a frame in which to utilize that information to constantly test your frame. And in that way, the bulk of the information that you see, which in many ways will be confirming information to your trend, you can largely set aside. Instead, you can focus your attention on finding information that breaks your anticipated trend or that seems to contradict your baseline understanding. And that baseline understanding in many ways built using the tools of geopolitics. There's a second piece to this as well, though, and that is it also gives you a starting point for asking new questions. In other words, as I'm looking forward, I have a baseline that I can build off of 
and say, okay, if I see this change in global trade patterns or this change in global consumption patterns or this change in mineral resources uh, use, use here or here or here, how can I anticipate that to impact this country? Or how can I see the change in the politics of a country potentially impact those types of use cases? So in China, uh, you look at the Chinese consumption of copper, uh, which goes into many things, but take a look at the Chinese consumption of steel, which in many ways was driven very heavily by Chinese internal construction. Then as you start to see changes in Chinese policy toward internal construction, which has to do with tax structures, it has to do with um, managing population, with moving wealth to the interior instead of just the coast, you can start to play out potential implications far beyond China. The value of forecasting as an activity is that it is supposed to help you overcome probably what is a fundamental constraint to every single person in the world, which is the uncertainty about the future. If you are a business person, you're very concerned with where things are going to go. For example, in China, like you're mentioning trade patterns, consumption patterns, that information very much is something you're going to factor into your calculus as you make your decisions. When we are using the geopolitical method, what kind of forecasting are we going for? Are we going for outcomes? I mean, are we trying to to show people that we think that this will be the outcome? Or are we maybe trying to forecast a trend or a directionality, showing people that this is sort of the direction in which we think, for example, trade patterns or consumption patterns are going to go in? So this is going to change depending upon the time frame that we're looking at. Geopolitics really helps to look at long-term future directionalities as opposed to specific events. Okay. And geopolitics as a synthetic study, one that brings in geography, politics, economics, uh, society, security, technology, right. each of these as integral components, takes that model that we build of understanding the now, but also plays it forward and also looks at them intertwining with one another. In other words, as we look at China, we're not just looking at the numerical amount of steel consumption and the numerical amount of production and things of that sort, but we're looking at the dynamics of the politics. We're looking at the dynamics of society. We're looking at the different aspects that may drive decision-making in China that are beyond just the basic concepts of we're producing too much steel, therefore we need to cut steel production. Well, we have to understand the whole underlying structure of the system to see whether that's an achievable goal or not. On a shorter time frame, geopolitics proves in and of itself perhaps a less effective tool for forecasting or for forecasting discrete events. Rather, at that point, you start to use the basic analytic tools to drill down, but geopolitics gives you that starting point to understand what are the types of questions I'm going to ask, how am I going to break down those questions, and how do those fit in this frame of the flow that we have already predicted? While it is important to have sight of the point that's in the distance, you need to also think maybe in the near term, say in a quarter. And you were mentioning that if you're going to go and start investigating or trying to understand something in the more near term, you start using more of the analytic methods. Is this where you can draw the distinction between, say, geopolitics and intelligence? They're two different things. Geopolitics is a frame in which to look at things. It's a synthetic approach to understanding the world, and it starts from the idea that the interaction of place and organized people 
has created certain characteristics that may be characteristics that will continue and follow and be manifest. Intelligence analysis is a set of tools for breaking down questions, identifying ways of collecting information, and recombining the information to bring you back to your detailed answer. And so if you take the two elements and bring them together, you have something that can both give you a framed world model and a way to investigate your assertions within that world model. And if we were to then take that to the business case, this gives you a way of understanding on a broader level the way in which the world works. In many ways, it is a qualitative understanding that can then be tested through quantitative measures. At the end of the day, geopolitics can help you see more clearly. And if you can, of course, see something more clearly, if you are then able to ask the right questions, invest your time in the right places, that's a good thing. Roger, thank you very much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Faisal. That concludes this episode of Stratfor Talks. If you'd like to get up to date on the battle from the source so far and learn what comes next, we'll include links to related analysis at stratfor.com in the show notes. Or if you'd like to learn more about how Stratfor's geopolitical analysis and forecasting can help your business succeed in an increasingly complicated world, you can visit us at stratfor.com enterprise or email us at business at stratfor.com. If you have a question or a comment about the podcast, or even an idea for a future episode, let us know. You can reach Stratford Talks at 1-512-744-4300, extension 3917, or by email at podcast at stratford.com. And for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis, and forecasting, visit us at stratford.com, or follow us on Twitter at Stratford. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.